Republicans will take back control of the U.S. House of Representatives when the new congressional session begins in January. It's Thursday, November 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Democrats rush to enact federal protections as the GOP celebrates its victory in the House. I'm proud to announce the era of one-party Democrat rule in Washington is over. Also this hour, NATO says a missile that left two people dead in Poland likely came from a Ukrainian defense system. Plus, Maine lobster fisheries lose an important sustainability certificate in the ongoing struggle over the protection of endangered North Atlantic right whales. We're watching the species go extinct in real time. In sports, the Celtics continue their winning streak in Atlanta, clear but windy with highs in the mid-40s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, Mitch McConnell will remain leader of the Senate Republicans for at least another two years. As NPR's Lexi Chapatel reports, McConnell staved off a challenge from discontented members looking for change. After an underwhelming midterm for Republicans, McConnell faced his first leadership challenge in 15 years. Senator Rick Scott of Florida ran against him for the top spot, calling for a change to the status quo. The final tally was 37 to 10, with one member voting present. Speaking to reporters after the vote, McConnell said the party needs to turn away from chaos and negativity to win centrist voters. We have a problem with people in the middle who still, even though there are not as many of them as there used to be, determine the outcome. Mitch McConnell is on his way to becoming the longest-serving conference leader ever. Lexi Chapitol, NPR News, the Capitol. Russia continues to launch missiles and explosive drones at targets across Ukraine. NPR's Jason Bobian tells us the attacks come on the heels of a barrage of airstrikes earlier this week. Local officials here in Odessa report that a missile hit what they would only describe as an infrastructure facility further east in Dnipro. At least two missiles struck the center of the city in the middle of the morning rush hour. And in the capital, Kyiv, officials say they activated the city's air defense system this morning, shooting down multiple cruise missiles and Iranian-made drones. Russia has been conducting aerial attacks on water, power, and heating plants across Ukraine. The campaign has led to rolling blackouts nationwide and severe water shortages in several cities. On Tuesday, in one of the largest set of airstrikes since the start of the invasion, Russia launched nearly 100 missiles at Ukraine. Jason Bobian, NPR News, Odessa. Police are still searching for the suspect in the murders of four college students in a rental house near the University of Idaho campus. Police believe the victims were targeted, but say there was no threat to the public. Aaron Snell is the communications director with the Idaho State Police. We have a crime scene, uh, but we don't have a suspect. We don't have a weapon. Uh, we don't have a lot of things in this case. And so, you know, we really do want and need the neighbors, uh, the community's support, and we need their uh, tips and their leads. Uh, they're the ones that can help us crack this case. Police say two more roommates who were in the house when officers arrived are cooperating with the investigation that now involves multiple law enforcement agencies. Residents in the town of Moscow are being advised to stay vigilant and be aware of their surroundings. Authorities in Turkey have detained a suspect linked to a deadly bombing at a popular thoroughfare lined with shops and restaurants that left six people dead Sunday in Istanbul. That suspect was caught late yesterday and Turkish authorities blame the attack on Kurdish militant groups, but they have denied any involvement. Global stocks mostly declined today. You're listening to NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. 
Local parents, students, and school administrators gather in Lexington today to discuss increasing threats to school safety. Mental health and law enforcement will also attend in part to talk about the importance of what's called threat assessment protocols. Those aim to prevent concerning student behavior from turning into violence. Margie Daniels is with Massachusetts Partnerships for Youth, the group hosting the conference. She says her nonprofit helps school districts establish and enhance their threat assessment teams. With so many tragic instances of school shootings and other types of targeted violence, school safety is very much on everyone's minds um, in schools in Massachusetts and probably across the country. Threat assessments may include scrutiny of a student of concerns, interests, communications, access to weapons, and mental health status. Text messages reveal that the Florida governor's office worked directly with other officials to transport migrants to Martha's Vineyard this summer. The messages from Governor Ron DeSantis's office were released as part of a lawsuit. In the text, DeSantis's public safety czar, Larry Keefe, coordinates flights with the owner of a charter jet company. He also talks with a woman named Perla Huerta about the process of recruiting migrants to make the trip. The Boston Philharmonic Orchestra is asking people to be on the lookout for musical scores stolen from its conductor. The documents were in Benjamin Zander's car when it was stolen in Cambridge last week. Zander tells the Boston Globe the scores include years of work. Despite that, Zander says the show must go on, and it will on Sunday when the orchestra has a concert scheduled. Zander's working to create replicas of the missing documents. The doctor treating Jay Leno for burns says the Andover native and former Tonight Show host suffered significant burns to his face, hands, and chest during a fire in his garage. Plastic surgeon Dr. Peter Grossman says Leno has already undergone one surgery with another plan this week. Grossman described the surgical procedure doctors performed. And then a biological skin substitute was placed over the wounds in order to expedite healing create a wound healing environment that stimulates the body to progress in a positive direction. Grossman says there was nerve damage. He says while Leno's injuries are serious, his condition is good. And at one point, Leno was passing out cookies to children and has been helping with other patients. It's 7.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And Loomis Sales, where portfolio managers, research analysts, and traders work together to help clients reach their financial goals. Learn more at LoomisSales.com. The Celtics are celebrating a win in Atlanta. The team outscored the Hawks by 25 points last night and marks their eighth straight win. They'll travel on to New Orleans tomorrow. The game tips off at 8.30. The Bruins hit the ice at the Garden tonight. They face off against the Philadelphia Flyers. The Bruins are undefeated at home so far this season. They'll look to clinch their 10th home win tonight at 7. Mostly sunny today and breezy with temperatures in the mid-40s. Clear and windy tonight. Temperatures are expected to dip just below freezing. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 45 degrees. The breezy weather continues. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 7.07. WBUR supporters include Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. 
And I'm Steve Inskeep. We have an update this morning on a missile strike that caused some deaths as well as anxiety around the world. Poland says it believes that a missile that crashed on their territory was friendly fire from Ukraine. But Ukraine says it doesn't think so. It's a high-stakes dispute. Either way, people were killed. But the question is whether the missile strike was a Russian attack or a Ukrainian mistake. NPR's Greg Myrie is in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev, and has been following all this. Hey there, Greg. Good morning, Steve. What's the evidence and who's gathering it? Well, Poland has sent a big team to this site on the eastern part of the country, and we're hearing today that they've been joined by a U.S. team. Now, two Polish citizens were killed there Tuesday. The missile left a huge crater. There's fragments, which should provide pretty convincing evidence on whose missile this was. And, and Poland's president says all this information points so far to a Ukrainian air defense missile that was trying to shoot down an incoming Russian missile. He calls it an unfortunate accident. But President Zelensky appeared on TV Wednesday and in, in some just making some informal remarks said, I have no doubt that it was not our missile. And he says Ukraine will participate in an investigation, but uh, he didn't provide any evidence to back up this statement. How significant is this disagreement? Well, it's, it's notably right now, mostly because Ukraine and its backers have all been on the same page. And Poland is not criticizing Ukraine. It understands why this could have happened. Also, the Biden administration and NATO have put out statements saying it's Russia that's responsible. Here's NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. Let me be clear. This is not Ukraine's fault. Russia bears ultimate responsibility as it continues its illegal war against Ukraine. And an important point, Steve, if this was a Russian missile, that would make this a lot more complicated. It would then be a strike on a NATO country, lots of difficult questions about how to respond. If it's a Ukrainian missile, it's much easier to call it an accident and just move on. And I guess we should be very clear uh, when we say the Biden administration is saying Russia is responsible. They're not saying it was a Russian missile. They're just saying it's Russia's fault for starting a war in which people are killed. Is that correct? Uh, that, that's right, Steve. Well, let's talk about the larger question here. Ukraine is firing missiles in its defense because it's facing Russian missile barrages. How damaging have those barrages been? Well, Ukraine is pleading for more air defenses, and NATO held a meeting yesterday. And it was very interesting to see uh, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin and General Mark Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, sitting side by side discussing the way forward in the war. Milley says Ukraine has the momentum and Russia is hurting, but Ukraine's goal of driving out all the Russian troops will be very hard. So now may be a good time for Ukraine to negotiate. And Austin says that Ukraine has exceeded expectations throughout the war, so he's not going to set any limits. He made clear the U.S. would keep up strong military support. Okay, Greg, thanks so much for the update. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. NPR's Greg Myrie is in Kiev. Stephen Flanagan is with us now to discuss this further. He's a senior fellow at the Rand Corporation and a former senior director on the National Security Council during the Obama administration. Stephen, welcome. Good morning, Layla. Good morning. So as we heard, one of the big concerns since the start of the Russian war on Ukraine has been the possibility of escalation into a wider conflict and that missile strike on a Polish village accident. Uh, it appears to be an accident, but it elevated those fears. What did we learn from NATO's response to that incident and the process for determining whether the alliance has been attacked? 
Well, I think we did, you point out exactly the risks, and we did see NATO respond, I think, in, in a very effective way in trying to address and, and clarify what the situation was and to reassure particularly its Polish allies who were the, uh, the Polish allies who were the victim of this, uh, of the effects of the, of the uh, missile incident uh, about the commitment uh, of the alliance to uh, Polish security. The overall, the incident underscores that the risks, of, as you say, of this wider war as uh, and extending into a number of European countries, uh, including others who are NATO allies, as these uh, hundreds of Russian strikes continue to yeah. escalate across the all of Ukraine and particularly out to Western Ukraine, where some of these border areas are. But it, it uh, but the way the incident went down underscores the need for close consultations with allies, but also with Ukraine, as we see, as your reporter just noted. Uh, some differences uh, between now Ukraine and the Polish and, and U.S. assessment as to as to what exactly happened um, and whose air defense missile it was or what, whether it was some other missile that perhaps the Russians had fired. You know, that begs the question, you know, right now Ukraine is saying, wait a second, it wasn't a Ukrainian mistake. That's not what the evidence was. Is this just a way so that NATO allies aren't just dragged into a bigger war? No, I think Ukraine just wants to be able to uh, have access to the site to try to help be engaged in the assessment. And uh, um, the Polish president uh, suggested that right now the investigation was being led by his government in the United States. But uh, uh, President Zelensky has asked for access. And I, I expect that, that they will share all the information that they have so that this can be clarified because of the importance of uh, that both Poland and the United States and other NATO allies are, are providing uh, extensive uh, security assistance and other military support to Ukraine. So they want to clarify this, I think, as soon as possible. As we heard, NATO still putting the blame at Russia's door for invading and attacking Ukraine in the first place. What do you think Russia took away from watching NATO's really cautious approach in its reaction? Well, I think the Russians first saw NATO uh, a, a prompt response from NATO in gathering consultations, uh, trying to make an assessment. There were some, you know, the initial and pre preliminary suspicions, particularly the Poles and other Central East Europeans, was that this must be a Russian uh, missile strike, and particularly coming along that border uh, where there are uh, shipments of uh, material going uh, into into Ukraine of, of Western security assistance. That perhaps this was a warning shot from the Russians, but. Um, the Russians saw that NATO uh, made deliberate uh, assessment of the situation and then articulated a statement, uh, as you saw yesterday in Secretary General Stoltenberg's press conference, where he said it did appear to be an errant uh, Ukrainian air defense system. Nevertheless, the Russians tried to capitalize this on suggest that, well, we see the, the hotheads uh, in the West are already trying to uh, stoke uh, further tensions and, and that, that the West is trying to escalate this conflict. Mm -hmm. So a bit turning things a bit on its head. But I think, as your reporter noted, Secretary Stoltenberg said, make no mistake who's responsible for this. Ukraine wouldn't be firing off uh, if, if this is, in fact, an Ukrainian air defense missile that went errant. Um, they wouldn't be firing those missiles off if, they, if, if the country wasn't under a vicious attack by uh, the Russian military forces. Does it make it more or less likely that Russia might attempt to test NATO's resolve? Well, well, I think uh, in, in NATO um, met the, an initial test. It certainly is one that this is certainly one scenario, one that we've looked at in some of our analysis um, among my colleagues of, of potential escalation scenarios and this idea of striking perhaps one of the transshipment points of security assistance or uh, a couple of um, test strikes along the, along the border uh, with Ukraine against NATO members uh, to see how the alliance does respond uh, is certainly one that needs uh, watching. 
But that's also another reason uh, and one of the other takeaways I have from this event is that it is important to maintain a line of communications with the Russians uh, to manage these escalation risks. And that, that has continued. Uh, uh, General Miley has talked to his counterpart, General Gerasimov, periodically. Uh, we know that uh, the, the CIA Director Burns was in Moscow recently. Um, there are other high-level ways of communicating and, and trying to manage uh, and ensure that this uh, fear that, that uh, all the countries in NATO have uh, of, a, of a wider war uh, doesn't uh, emerge, even as the United States and, and the other NATO allies continue to support Ukraine in its effort to uh, end the Russian, Russian aggression. Now, Article 5 of NATO's charter regards an arms attack on one member as an attack on all. It's been invoked just once by the U.S. after 9-11. Could a missile falling on a NATO ally, errant or not, from Russia be enough to invoke Article 5? It could, it could indeed, and indeed the uh, the polls initially had indicated that they might like to uh, ask for uh, what's sometimes seen as a preliminary to invoking an Article 5 and Article 4 consultations within the alliance. There was a meeting at the North Atlantic Council on Wednesday. Um, I don't know, I don't believe they did actually invoke that other article, but, but clearly um, if there were a, a direct attack, uh, the, the, that would it would be uh, it, it, such as you described that that would uh, conceivably invoke Article Five commitments. Stephen Flanagan is a senior fellow at the Rand Corporation. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Leila. Okay, we saw this coming. Many hospitals are overwhelmed again. This time, it's because of simultaneous surges of the flu, RSV, and other infections. And this time, many of the patients are kids. Here's Nash Jones with our member station KUNM in Albuquerque. University of New Mexico Children's Hospital, the state's only dedicated pediatric hospital, filled up in mid-October. COVID, para-influenza, and enterovirus are all contributing to the surge. This week, UNM Children's reached 119% capacity. And now the pediatric units at the state's other two largest hospitals are full, too. At Presbyterian, we are also running at and above capacity on a, on a daily basis. Dr. John Peterson is medical director of children's care at New Mexico's 450-bed Presbyterian Hospital. He says restrictions on kids during the pandemic are contributing to the surge now. With COVID, we have vaccines. We have a lot of community immunity. We kind of have this immunity gap when it comes to other viruses such as RSV and influenza. New Mexico's three biggest hospitals are collaborating by sharing resources and making transfers. Lessons they learned from COVID, says Dr. Vesta Sandoval, chief medical officer at Loveless Health System. We have a sort of playbook of how we can try to work together as, uh, as our systems become stressed with increasing numbers of patients. It's unclear how long the surge will last. Hospital officials are expecting modeling from the state health department later this week. I do believe that over the winter, it's going to become more difficult. New Mexico has one of the lowest hospital capacities in the nation, which led several hospitals to activate crisis standards of care during a COVID surge last fall. They are not at that point at this time. Hospital officials are urging parents and guardians to care for children at home when appropriate and encouraging masking, hand washing and vaccinations for the viruses that have one. There's not yet a vaccine for RSV. For NPR News, I'm Nash Jones in Albuquerque. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, as world leaders at the U.N. summit in Egypt race to come to an agreement, the director of the U.S. Department of Energy's Joint Center for Energy Storage Research explains why batteries are critical to transitioning to a clean energy future. It's 719. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. 
we will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping public radio advance journalistic excellence in the digital age, informed communities, essential for healthy democracy. KnightFoundation.org. Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at BrooklineBank.com. And Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, Realist state brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. A new word was coined to describe the economy in the fall of 2020. She-session. Neat, but maybe too convenient. I realized the news media is filled with headlines that don't fully reflect what's going on in the economy. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. Mostly sunny today with a high near 46. We'll also have some gusty winds. Tonight the winds continue and temperatures fall to a low around 31. Tomorrow sunny with a high near 45. Then sunny both days this weekend around 40 degrees. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 721. Stay with 90.9 WBUR for continuing coverage on the balance of power in Washington after Republicans capture control of the House and Democrats maintain control of the Senate. For the latest, keep listening. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week to allow employees to maximize their time and productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. And from Amazon Business, from small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. This is NPR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Let's get a picture of a carbon-neutral future. The U.S. is trying to change its electricity sources to produce fewer of the gases that contribute to climate change. The fight over the climate has been a partisan issue, but beyond that, it's simply a practical problem. How do you get power from cleaner sources? In earlier days on this program, we've heard about nuclear power and wind power. The next question is how to store energy from renewable sources like wind and solar. George Crabtree is the director of the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research and an expert on batteries. The lithium-ion battery that we have now can discharge at full power for about four hours. And that's great for intraday needs, passing clouds, gusty winds, even for extending, let's say, solar power past sunset by a few hours, and that's when there's a huge demand peak. But it cannot do, let's say, consecutive days that are overcast or that are calm. So you need a different battery for that. It won't be lithium ion. That's one of the technological breakthroughs that we're looking for, often called long duration storage. And even aside from the duration, there's the sheer number. I'm imagining you must need like giant warehouses full of batteries, millions of batteries. The warehouse of batteries is exactly what is deployed next to every solar farm. And if you see them, it looks like a huge parking garage. 
it really takes up space. Luckily for the electricity grid, they don't have to be located in cities. They can be out where the solar farm or the wind farm is. And that's a huge advantage. So the fact that it takes up a lot of space isn't really the biggest challenge. Are there things other than batteries that can be used to store energy? There are. So things like hydrogen, which is getting a lot of play now. You could burn hydrogen in a gas turbine to produce electricity. You could use hydrogen in fuel cells that produce electricity without combustion, still a chemical reaction. Or you could simply use hydrogen to create ammonia, NH3, which is another liquid as opposed to gaseous uh, chemical storage medium that people talk about. I've heard people talk about using gravity as a storage device. Would you explain how that would work? Sure. So the gravity storage is sometimes called, it's just a, another form of hydroelectric storage. So you pump water uphill when you've got extra electricity. You let it flow downhill through a generator when you need the electricity. And that is actually incredibly versatile. Most of the storage we have on the grid now is pumped hydro. So although there's plenty of hydro out there now, it's not considered to be viable for the many, many storage applications on the grid that are to, are to come. Is there some other form of gravity storage that would make sense that doesn't involve water? Sure. So you can, it works with anything that has weight. So you can lift concrete blocks with a big crane that might be half as tall as a skyscraper. And when you have extra electricity, you turn a generator, which lifts the concrete block up. When you want it back, you let the concrete block down slowly and generate electricity. I'm enjoying that because in junior high school science class, I learned about potential energy and kinetic energy. That pile of concrete blocks is potential energy sitting there, right? Exactly. And thanks for bringing it up. That's the way we talk about it. Let me ask, though, if you think that these various solutions for energy storage could be done on such a massive scale that we could do without fossil fuels for our basic electricity generation, the stuff that comes into my house? Yeah, great question. So the experts say that we could probably convert the grid 80% to renewable, that's wind and solar, without having to deal with this long duration storage problem. We'd still use gas peaker plants for that, but that would only be for 20% of the electricity that we need. If you want to do the other 20%, you're going to have to solve that problem of, of storage, you know, long-term storage for the grid days in a row. And you could do that with gravity storage. You could do that with a chemical energy carrier. It's done with methane now, so we got to get rid of the methane, but you could have hydrogen or ammonia or another chemical energy medium, which is yet to be discovered. That's the challenge. We can get to 80%, but we can't get to 100%. Wow. Well, that leads to another question. People who are anxious about adaptation to climate change will ask, am I going to be forced to change my life in some way, to consume less, to use less electricity? Um, would people, in your imagination at least, have to change their lives in some way to get to a carbon-neutral electric grid? Yeah, and I think it's, you use the word have to change. It may be that it's not a choice. We're going to go to EVs, for example, and the vision is that we'll have 100% EVs by some date, 2035, 2050, and that will change the way that we drive. Our driving habits will not be the same. We haven't gotten serious about those cultural changes and lifestyle changes yet. We haven't had to, but I think they will come for sure. 
when you see reports that say we need to make dramatic progress in terms of carbon emissions in the next 10 to 20 years, are you at all optimistic? Well, that's a good question. I think you hear a lot of pessimism in the country and the pessimism is growing simply because the severe weather is growing. It's pretty hard to miss. But the place where the pessimism is maybe the strongest is the younger generations, the Gen Zs and the millennials, who will inherit the world, the climate changed world, that we older folks are leaving to them, and they're not happy about it. The young people are going to take it much more seriously, I think, than the older generations, and they're going to demand action. So in that sense, I would say there's optimism. I think you were asking, though, about can we do it in 10 years? Yeah. We're not on track. That's clear. The United States has, through the bipartisan infrastructure bill and the Inflation Reduction Act, have put some money on the table to change that, at least in the United States. It's a bit controversial, but uh, I would say for the first time, the government is taking it seriously. And that can be a dramatic, let's say, influence on the rest of the world. It's a global problem, for sure. Cannot be solved in any one country. All the countries have to get together to make the commitment. And maybe we're making some progress to that. Clearly, we're not there yet. George Crabtree of the Argonne National Laboratory and the Joint Center for Energy Storage Research. Thanks so much. Thank you. We're storing up some knowledge here and we'll continue our talks on America's energy transition tomorrow. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, what to expect from a U.S. House of Representatives controlled by Republicans. It's 729. As you head out the door this morning, keep in mind you can keep listening to WBUR on your phone with the WBUR mobile app. We'll help you stay informed about all the day's news. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. And MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Republicans have secured the 218th seat needed to regain control of the House beginning in January. GOP Congressman Mike Garcia of California was declared the winner of his congressional race yesterday, ensuring a Republican majority. Six House races remain too close to call more than a week after Election Day. On Tuesday, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy was nominated by his Republican colleagues to run for House Speaker. In the Senate, Mitch McConnell was re-elected as minority leader. McConnell fought off a challenge from fellow GOP Senator Rick Scott of Florida. McConnell was asked about Scott seeking that leadership role. Anybody who wants to uh, run for it can feel free to do so. And um, so I'm not in any way offended by having an opponent or having a few uh, votes in opposition. A Wisconsin man has been formally sentenced to life in prison with no chance for parole for killing six people in suburban Milwaukee. Daryl Brooks drove an SUV through a Christmas parade in Waukesha last November. He was convicted on 76 charges. Police in Idaho say they've yet to make an arrest following the slayings of four University of Idaho students. Their bodies were discovered at an apartment near campus. This is NPR News. 
From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Haverhill High School is ending its football season over an apparent hazing incident. The school district says all team practices are canceled and the school will forfeit all upcoming games. It's placed the team's entire coaching staff on paid leave and says the investigation is now in the hands of the Haverhill Police Department. Rockland is settling a discrimination lawsuit with a man who was once the town's only black firefighter. In 2012, Craig Erickson filed a formal complaint alleging he was unfairly passed over for a promotion at the fire department. He said that he was repeatedly investigated for his conduct at work and ultimately fired. The Civil Service Commission overturned his termination. The Patriot Ledger reports that Erickson will receive nearly $338,000 in the settlement. MBTA officials are considering a proposal to change the way fare evasion is enforced. A proposed regulation would have a civilian group enforce the rules. Some MBTA board members are worried that would lead to the targeting of certain groups of people. T officials tell the Boston Herald they're deferring a vote until they can come up with other options. A Democratic incumbent in Maine will hold on to a competitive swing district. Jared Golden was declared the winner in Maine's second congressional district battle yesterday. His victory came via the state's ranked choice voting system. Golden was locked in a tight race against his Republican opponent after the first round tally, but a second round count sent him across the critical 50 percent vote share threshold. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Help put joy on every plate this Thanksgiving. Donate at gbfb.org slash WBUR. The Celtics are celebrating a win in Atlanta. The team outscored the Hawks by 25 points last night. It marks their eighth straight win. They'll travel on to New Orleans tomorrow. The game tips off at 8.30. The Bruins hit the ice at the Garden tonight. They face off against the Philadelphia Flyers. The Bruins are undefeated at home so far this season. They'll look to clinch their 10th home win tonight at 7. Clear skies and mid-40s today. It'll also be pretty windy. Those winds continue tonight as temperatures drop to the low 30s. Sunny tomorrow in the low to mid-40s. Sunny on Saturday in the low 40s. It's 37 degrees in Boston at 734. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. For all of their disappointments in the midterm elections, Republicans now have one big game. They captured control of the House of Representatives. This became clear when the Associated Press called a House race in California last night. Republican Representative Mike Garcia won re-election. Though counting continues, it now seems certain the party won at least 218 seats, the narrowest possible majority. About six races are still uncertain, but the Republican margin won't be much larger. Still a majority is a majority, and NPR's Claudia Grisales will cover that new Congress. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. 
Why is that maybe just one extra vote, two or three maybe, such a big deal? Right. In the House, nearly all the levers of power belong to the majority. That includes the committees that come with subpoena power, and that could open the door to a series of investigations into the Biden administration. And it also comes with control of what legislation comes to the House floor. Hmm. Well, what does that mean for the Democrats and the president who had their party in full control of Congress up to now? Right. This could mark a new era of gridlock. It puts Democrats on notice that they have about three weeks left on the legislative calendar this year to get to bills and other initiatives that may not be options come next year. And as we know, the Senate will remain in Democrats' hands where they'll be able to take up critical judicial nominees. But beyond that, divided government could block many legislative priorities for the Biden administration. Congress will have to find ways to work together on major must-pass bills, such as government funding, do it in a bipartisan fashion. But otherwise, expectations are that this marks the end of a wave of major Democratic-led initiatives that we saw pass these last couple of years for the Biden administration. And for his part, President Biden said in a statement, congratulate, he congratulated Republican leader Kevin McCarthy on the win and said he's, quote, ready to work with House Republicans to deliver results for working families. And he's willing to work with anyone, Republican or Democrat, to deliver those results. But how do Republicans run the place with such a very small majority and it is a fractious Republican membership? Right. They're going to have to figure out who will lead them first. And Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader, was a presumptive speaker with a red wave expected, but now he's facing a good amount of opposition. He did get a majority of his conference to nominate him as speaker in a vote held behind closed doors earlier this week. But he's going to face a much larger challenge getting a majority of the House floor to vote for him come next year. There's already Republicans who are bucking this plan. Dozens voted for a challenger to him as speaker during their closed door session. So this first test on who will be speaker will forecast how well the GOP will work together with very few votes to spare to move their priorities forward. Yeah, McCarthy did not have 218 votes when his conference voted, and he's going to have to somehow bring people right. on board and make concessions of some kind to them. Right. What about, though, the current speaker, Nancy Pelosi? What happens to her? Yes, there have been questions for months about her future plans. As we know, she'd previously told her caucus this could be her last term as speaker and leader of House Democrats, but that's been less clear. She's been dodging those questions uh, in recent months. But last night, her aide said she's been overwhelmed by calls from colleagues, friends, and supporters and that she monitored these vote returns and now with Republicans set to take control of the House, she's expected to address her future plans with her colleagues today. Historic figure has been a House speaker twice and a big figure for more than a decade. NPR's Claudia Grisales, thanks so much. Thank you much. Joe Biden will turn 80 years old in a few days, and being the oldest president in U.S. history has stirred up debate over whether he's too old to run again. A similar conversation is playing out in Southeast Asia this week, where Malaysia's 97-year-old former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamed is vying for an against-the-odds comeback in the election to pick a new parliament. NPR's Julie McCarthy reports that in an election where age has become an issue, young voters could shake things up. 
Malaysia's youth could be the kingmakers in Saturday's election thanks to two reforms. Voting age was lowered to 18, and everyone eligible to vote has been automatically registered. It's a dramatic shift that bumps up the voter rolls from 15 million to 21 million. Analyst James Chai says that's a nearly 30% increase in the size of the electorate. So fundamentally, the biggest unknown in the election is now that group of new voters who are largely consisting of people below 30 years old. Like its Southeast Asian neighbors, Malaysia is tracking younger, with 30 the average age. And Chai says generational tensions simmer in this election, as many young people attribute the problems of the country to leaders who don't understand them because they are too old. That former Prime Minister Mahathir Mohamad is contesting a seat in his late 90s, speaks to the perceived mismatch between the traditional ruling class and the country's changing demographic. And some analysts say his bid is doomed. But the age gap is advantaging younger politicians, who are better positioned to reach young potential supporters where they live, on social media. 29-year-old Syed Sadiq, one of the country's youngest politicians, is running for parliament and uses TikTok to air the grievances of young people in short, snappy clips. Economically, our country is we're just going way too low, lower than we should be. Poor education system. Uh, money laundering cases, uh, abuse of power. Microforms of racism, microforms of sexism. They think we are too young to think for ourselves. Sadiq, a rising political star with more than three million followers on social media platforms, says the TikTok generation wants to move beyond the old guard. And it's why he launched a new youth party in 2020. It's meant to be a party of disruptors to disrupt Malaysian politics because among the Malaysian masses, they see the political elites uh, engaging in political power plays uh, in which they get richer and richer, their cronies get richer and richer, uh, corruption gets far worse, uh, institutions of democracy weaken, and young people are fed up. Many young Malaysians these days support inclusion, pluralism, and there's growing acceptance of social issues such as LGBTQ rights. Many are alienated by the litany of corruption scandals that has engulfed the incumbent ruling coalition. And that could benefit opposition candidates who take to the campaign trail, like Syed Sadiq. He says besides corruption, the incumbent government has done little to address rising youth unemployment in the country's pandemic-ravaged economy. And Sadiq says his asset light generation is angry. We don't own a car, we cannot own a house, we can't even get a bank loan to get a mortgage on a house. Sadiq says their dire straits will animate turnout. In fact, according to a new survey, nearly 8 out of 10 young people said they would vote. If they do, young Malaysians could move their country in a new direction. Julie McCarthy, NPR News. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, Maine's lobster fisheries take another devastating hit in the fight to protect endangered North Atlantic right whales. Mid-40s today with gusty winds and mostly sunny skies. Tonight, windy with low 30s. Tomorrow, clear skies and low to mid-40s. Right now, it's 38 degrees in Boston at 743. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by AE Events. Design and production of corporate and nonprofit events, weddings and conferences. Website at aeevents.com. Authentic, artful, accomplished. And Delta Dental of Massachusetts, passionate about improving oral health across the state and reminding you that a healthy smile is a powerful thing. Visiting your dentist and taking care of your mouth could help protect your heart health and much more. Discover the connection between oral and overall health at expressyourhealthma.org. Now in business news, MassBio is asking the state to re-up its commitment to the life sciences industry. It wants Massachusetts to extend its funding under the life sciences law for another two years. MassBio says the funding will help the state remain a leader in the life sciences field. Northern Essex Community College is offering courses related to the cannabis industry. The online courses will go over processing cannabis-infused products, cultivation, and sales at dispensaries. It's the latest college in the area to offer cannabis-related courses, joining Roxbury and Berkshire Community Colleges. Massachusetts's pothole problem isn't as bad as it may seem. That's according to a new report that ranks the Bay State just 12th in the list of states with the worst pothole problems. Boston itself ranks well in comparison of the 50 most populous cities in the U.S. It came in at 34. It's 745. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Maine's lobster fishery is recoiling from another blow in an ongoing fight over the protection of right whales. An international organization that sets sustainability standards suspended the Maine industry's certificate yesterday. That comes just two months after American lobster fisheries were red-listed by a popular seafood rating guide over right whale concerns. Maine Public Radio's Patty White reports. Stonington fisherman Mike Dossett, who serves on the Downey's Lobstermen's Association, says he's frustrated and exhausted by the repercussions the lobster fishery are facing because of the endangered status of right whales. Frankly, I'm getting tired of it. It's, it's making it very difficult for us to make a living. It's just, it's ludicrous. Erica Feller of the Marine Stewardship Council says the decision to drop sustainability certification was made by independent auditors. It was triggered by a federal court decision in July that examined federal regulations intended to protect Atlantic right whales. The court found that those regulations didn't actually meet the requirements of the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act. And because federal regulations don't comply with those laws, says Feller, Maine's lobster fishery doesn't meet MSC's standard for sustainability. But the executive director of the Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative, Marianne LaCroix, says the decision unfairly penalizes lobstermen. It's really, you know, the regulations, not anything that the fishermen themselves are doing. That's also the conclusion of Governor Janet Mills and Maine's congressional delegation. They issued a joint statement calling the loss of the sustainability certification the result of a, quote, 
years-long campaign from misguided environmentalist groups who seem to be hell-bent on putting a proud, sustainable industry out of business without regard to the consequences of their actions. Kristen Monsell is from the Center for Biological Diversity, one of the conservation groups that sued to force federal fisheries regulators to take more aggressive action to protect right whales. She says conservation groups aren't trying to shut down the lobster industry. We're watching the species go extinct in real time, and these whales desperately need increased protections from getting tangled up and killed in lobster gear. Erica Feller from the Marine Stewardship Council says even though Maine's lobster fishery has a good record of compliance, they're also part of the picture of right whale conservation. It's serious. It's a really tragic situation. It's something that we see that everybody involved in the fishing industry is really concerned about, and MSC is really concerned about it. As of December 15th, the MSC sustainable certification will be suspended. It's a major blow to the industry, says Marianne LaCroix from the Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative. This certification is recognized worldwide, so it's not just the U.S., it's uh, international buyers as well. So it's, it is significant. The Maine lobster fishery first achieved certification in 2016, and it lost it once before in 2020 for similar reasons. MSC says it can be reinstated when the fishery is back in compliance. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Patty White. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Another hour of Morning Edition is coming up, and later today at 11 is Radio Boston. Tiziana Deering is here to give us a preview of the show. Good morning, Tiziana. Good morning, Rupa. And yeah, I want to preview the whole show today, because this is one of those days where we've got something for everyone. Mm -hmm. And we're starting with a book called Nazis of Copley Square. And that is not fiction. Exactly. It's not. It's a piece of our hidden history. Um, And a group called the Christian Front, anti-Semitic, the leader in Boston became pro-Nazi. Um, and it, it, it just didn't get addressed. And there's inc- it's an incredible story yeah. with relevance for today. Okay, what else is in the grab bag? So Hiawatha Bray, Tech Talk, um, an AI engine that uh, can paint a picture on your request. Or if you say, write me a paragraph on X, mm, it will go out and do the research and do the writing for you. Yeah, I have lots of questions about that. <laughs> I have questions. So do I, right? Can it also go on the radio and talk about it? Exactly right. <laughs> no, it'll actually be Hiawatha, I promise. Okay. Uh, and then we're going to look at turkey distribution by local nonprofit organizations for families this time of year. Uh, we're going to go kind of beneath the traditional headline on that. And of course, the big news is that the cost is way up this yep. year. That's Radio Boston today at 11 and 3. Thank you, Tiziana. Thanks, Rupa. It is 750. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Progressive Insurance, home of the Name Your Price tool, so drivers can see coverage options at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users, Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. I'm Deepa Fernandes. As you make year-end contributions to organizations that play an important role in your life and have deep impact in our community, put WBUR on your list. Support the reporting and storytelling that keep us all informed and connected. And as our thanks... 
get a year of The New Yorker at a 40% savings. This is a limited time offer. Start your monthly gift at WBUR.org. And thank you. A mix of sun and clouds today with temperatures in the mid-40s. It'll also be windy. Tonight it falls to the low 30s. Tomorrow, clear skies and low to mid-40s. Friday night, temperatures may fall to the upper 20s. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 751. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the law firm of Nutter, McLennan & Fish, counsel to leading companies and institutions for more than a century. Client-focused, collaborative, this is Nutter. Online at Nutter.com. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, opening November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm e. Martinez. When soccer's World Cup kicks off, one of the sport's biggest stars will have his last chance to win a title that has so far eluded him. Lionel Messi is often spoken of as perhaps the game's greatest player ever, but he's never lifted the famous gold trophy for his country, Argentina. It is a constant source of criticism for the man nicknamed La Pulga Atomica, the atomic flea, due to his small stature and the way he buzzes past defenders. His determination to swat aside those complaints might be all the greater when you consider that the 35-year-old's identity as an Argentino has been questioned because he left the country as a teenager to begin his ascent to stardom in Spain. That's the inspiration behind the new NPR podcast, La Ultima Copa, The Last Cup, which is out now, hosted by Jasmine Guards. All right, so Jasmine, what made you want to make this podcast about Messi and this journey to his final World Cup? Well, you know, like uh, Lionel Messi, I am from Argentina and I'm very soccer obsessed. Soccer was a part of my life growing up. And I, I became just really fascinated with his relationship with his home country and Even though, you know, Lionel Messi is a huge superstar, there were some themes in his personal story that I definitely identified. Uh, There were echoes of of things I had heard people in other immigrant communities talk about. It was like this story about someone who leaves home really young, spends a lot of their life wondering what could have happened, yearning, you know, in the nostalgia, wondering if you can ever go back. And then navigating that relationship when you do go back, which is very complicated. Well, now you wanted to make this podcast about Messi uh, in both English and Spanish. Why was that important to you? You know, I had been thinking a lot about Leo Messi. And I got into an Uber and was a Dominican driver. And he started talking to me uh, in Espanol. uh, And he started telling me about how he was getting older. And people back home wanted him to come back. But his life was here in New York. Mm. And as he was telling me this, I was like, whoa, I I should do this story. You know, there's like a common element. There's a common theme. And every time I would hear this story, it would be in Espanol. And so I, I just, we really wanted to do it justice by telling it in both languages. Now, the first three episodes are already out, so let's get a flavor from episode one. Lionel Messi, no, no, no. No, 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 it's gone away. It's gone away. The greatest achievement you can have as a footballer is winning international trophies for your country. It just is a bigger legend than winning Champions League. The one thing Messi has never been able to achieve is to win a World Cup for his home country, Argentina. And he's missed it, it's been saved. But there was a target area. 
And Messi misplaced it. Messi! Even now he can't get his goal. And he doesn't pick up the prize he really wanted. For most of his career, when Leo Messi put on that Argentina soccer jersey, things got really bad really quick. He missed it! Watching Lionel Messi put his shirt over his face. He's now crouched down with his head on the field. He was sitting on the floor, curled up in a ball shaking, crying inconsolably. Over the years, every time I would watch Messi play a big game for Argentina, I'd get really anxious. Not just because I'm also from Argentina and I hated watching our team lose. It was a personal anxiety about what I knew happened after every game. A lot of people back home would get angry at him. His critics would say that he only cared enough to play well for the European clubs. That he'd left Argentina too young, and now he was no longer Argentine. And the reason this rhetoric filled me with dread is that I, too, had to leave Argentina when I was a teenager, and it wasn't really by choice. The national crisis has seen protesters taking to the streets, angry at the government's inability to end what is now three years of recession. As happens to many immigrants, as time passed, I would feel further and further away from home. And I was haunted by questions like, can I ever go back? If I do, will I be a foreigner in my own country? I know some people are going to say, Jasmine, chill out. (laughs) Messi is an international superstar. He's got a great life. He's very wealthy. Don't try and make me feel bad for him. But one of the reasons I love soccer is because it's about so much more than a ball in a field with 22 players. And in this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about how soccer is a way to understand the world. Class, race, immigration, colonialism. That's an excerpt from episode one of the new NPR podcast, La Ultima Copa, The Last Cup, and host Jasmine Guards is still with us. Now, Jasmine, Messi has been voted the best player in the world a number of times. Um, He's rewritten soccer's history books. But Diego Maradona is a god because in 1986, he pretty much single-handedly led Argentina to World Cup glory. So, Jasmine, if Lionel Messi never lifts the cup over his head, where will he rank in los corazones de tu paisanos argentinos, in the hearts <laughs> of your countrymen? I think he, he's come around to being uh, very beloved, um, and people have like a certain kind, like tenderness for him because they understand what he went through. I think Diego Maradona represents something completely different to Argentina. I mean, he's this kid from the slums who like was really on the outskirts of society in terms of class and race and he overcame all kinds of challenges to to become this hero but i do think that you know leo messi has has come around and that people have finally started to embrace him yeah if he never wins a cup 
Maybe he is <laughs> beloved. Don't say that, hey! <laughs> you don't don't invoke it. <laughs> I know. I know. We'll see. He's the last chance is coming up. Jasmine Gartz is the host of La Última Copa, the last cup out now wherever you get your podcast. Jasmine, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was fun. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Midday Host Jack Lepiars, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster, and you can listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. After a week of counting, a victory in California gives Republicans control of the U.S. House of Representatives by a slim majority. It's Thursday, November 17th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the crackdown in Iran intensifies with security forces opening fire at people in a metro station. The state in Iran still retains a monopoly of the use of force to suppress people, even with violent means, which they continue to demonstrate. Also this hour, shelters across the U.S. are seeing a surge in the number of senior citizens with no place to live. We definitely are seeing more and more like folks in their 70s, and we've definitely seen some in their 80s or 90s. Plus, L.A. elects its first woman and second African-American to lead the city. In sports, the Celtics win, partly sunny, windy, and mid-40s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dwayne Brown. More than a week after Election Day, Republicans have won a slim majority to take control of the U.S. House of Representatives. Republicans secured the 218 votes needed to flip the House, giving the GOP more leverage to complicate the Biden administration's agenda. Here's NPR's Windsor Johnston. Moving ahead, they're expected to open a number of investigations on a wide range of issues, including President Biden's border policies, the origins of the coronavirus, and the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan. Republicans are also likely to block any remaining items on Biden's legislative agenda and try to reverse some of the legislation that Democrats have passed over the last two years. That's NPR's Windsor Johnston. Some votes in competitive races are still being counted, and that will determine the full scope of the GOP's majority in the House. In New York City, former Trump chief financial officer Alan Weisselberg returns to the witness stand for a second day in the criminal trial of Trump's company. As NPR's Andrea Bernstein tells us he's expected to continue to lay bare a scheme to cheat taxpayers. Weisselberg has already pleaded guilty to 15 felonies for organizing an illegal payment scheme. According to his plea, he was paid in benefits like luxury cars and an apartment, which allowed him to save money on taxes. Earlier this week, Weisselberg said the payment method had been okayed by Trump and saved the company on taxes, too. When Trump became president, the untaxed benefits were replaced with a higher salary. Weisselberg also testified that he's on a paid leave of absence, making $640,000 a year and a hoped-for bonus. Trump is not charged personally, and his company says Weisselberg did it for himself, not the company. Andrea Bernstein, NPR News, New York. Poland says it believes a deadly missile that slammed into its territory came from Ukraine, but 
Ukraine's president says he doesn't think it was fired by his country. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, public disagreements between Ukraine and its Western backers have been rare. Polish officials say the U.S. is now taking part in the investigation of the missile that killed two people and left a huge crater just inside the country's eastern border with Ukraine. Poland, the U.S., and NATO all say the evidence points to a Ukrainian air defense missile that went astray while trying to shoot down an incoming Russian missile. They've not criticized Ukraine and say Russia is responsible due to its ongoing attacks. But Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky said his military told him it was not a Ukrainian weapon. He did not provide details. Ukraine is asked to take part in the investigation, and Poland says it does not object. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Kyiv. Global stocks mostly declined today amid concerns in China. Shares in Tokyo were down. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. All 15 of Massachusetts's regional transit authorities are offering free bus and paratransit rides as a way of encouraging residents to use public transportation. Some rides will be free starting November 25th and continuing through the end of the year. Nirvani Williams has more. All fixed route and paratransit or disability access services will be offered at no cost to customers in PVTA's service area during this period. Brandy Pelletier, a spokesperson for PVTA, says they're hoping riders will invest in the local economy. With the addition of gaining new choice ridership, that there's also going to be increased spending at local shops and restaurants with more people traveling out and about and trying transit on us. The initiative is funded through a state grant that was awarded to all 15 Massachusetts regional transit authorities, including Franklin and Berkshire counties. PVTA was awarded a little more than $700,000 for the short-term prepaid service. The initiative does not include the MBTA. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nirvani Williams. A top official in Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' administration personally helped coordinate the transportation of migrants to Martha's Vineyard this summer. That's according to text messages that were handed over by Governor Ron DeSantis' office in response to a lawsuit. They show public safety czar Larry Keith communicating about the operation with Perla Huerta. Migrants say Huerta used McDonald's gifts cards to entice them to board flights bound for the vineyard. Keefe's texts also include exchanges with the owner of the chartered jet company that furnished the flights. The stepmother of Harmony Montgomery is expected to plead guilty on charges related to perjury tomorrow. Lawyers for Kayla Montgomery say she will cooperate with prosecutors. Her husband was charged with the murder of the child who vanished in New Hampshire in 2019. Prosecutors are suggesting Montgomery serve a two-year sentence. Workers at six Boston-area Starbucks stores are joining a national strike today. They include locations in Cleveland Circle, on Commonwealth Avenue, and on Federal Street in downtown Boston. The union representing the workers says they object to how the coffee chain treats workers who want to unionize. Workers plan strikes at more than 100 Starbucks stores across the country. It's 8.06. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Rhodes Scholar creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org learning. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the all-new 2023 Subaru vehicles are arriving. Love is out there. Citysidesubaru.com.
The Celtics outscored the Hawks by 25 points last night in Atlanta. The final score was 126-101. The team is on the road again in New Orleans tomorrow. They'll be looking for their ninth straight win against the Pelicans. The Bruins will face off against the Philadelphia Flyers tonight at the Garden. The team remains undefeated on home ice so far this season. The matchup starts at 7. Mostly sunny today and breezy with temperatures in the mid-40s. Clear and windy tonight. Temperatures are expected to dip just below freezing. Tomorrow, the breezy weather continues. It'll be sunny with a high near 45 degrees. It's 38 degrees right now in Boston at 807. WBUR supporters include DuckDuckGo, a company committed to making privacy online simple. DuckDuckGo's app includes a private search engine, web browser, and email protection with one download. More at DuckDuckGo.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. Los Angeles has elected a new mayor. After a week of counting votes, Congresswoman Karen Bass was declared the winner in her race against billionaire businessman Rick Caruso. Bass will be the first woman ever to lead Los Angeles and only the second African-American. For more, we're joined by NPR's Adrian Florido, who is in Los Angeles. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, Layla. So, Adrian, tell us more about L.A.'s mayor-elect Karen Bass. Well, Karen Bass is an L.A. native who's represented the city as a Democrat in Congress for 12 years. Before that, she was a California state legislator, but she made her name as a community organizer in black and Latino neighborhoods in South L.A. In 1990, she founded a nonprofit, the Community Coalition, to address the crack epidemic that was plaguing those neighborhoods. Two years ago, you might remember, she was on President Joe Biden's shortlist for a vice presidential running mate. All of this made her the early favorite to win the mayor's race. And now that she has, she'll be the first woman, as you said, to lead L.A. in its 241-year history uh, and only its second black mayor. Okay, so as you said, she was the early favorite, but she, she had a tougher race than expected. How did her challenger, Rick Caruso, manage to keep it so close? Well, in a word, money. Rick Caruso is a real estate developer who built some of L.A.'s most well-known outdoor shopping malls, including The Grove. And he's a billionaire who poured $100 million into his campaign, shattering records and outspending Bass uh, more than 10 to 1. He also sold himself as the best person to solve what is really L.A.'s biggest problem right now. It's it's crisis with homelessness. Mm -hmm. Poll after poll uh, showed that homelessness was voters' top concern here, along with worries about public safety. Uh, And surveys also showed that many voters did think that as an outsider and as a businessman, uh, Rick Caruso was the better candidate to solve that problem. Wow. So he spent all that money, but then he still fell short. What happened? Well, L.A. is a dark blue, deeply Democratic city. And although the mayor's race is nonpartisan, uh, Rick Caruso was a lifelong Republican who only switched parties last year. So that made a lot of voters skeptical of him. Uh, Still, he earned a lot of support in in richer, wider neighborhoods, especially on the city's west side. But Karen Bass really dominated in the city's more diverse, working-class neighborhoods. And in the end, her her liberal credentials carried her to victory. And what can Angelinos expect from mayor-elect Karen Bass? Well, she released a statement last night after she was declared the winner saying that she planned to start immediately to solve the homelessness 
crisis uh, and also to address L.A.'s affordability crisis. Um, these are tough issues that, that have vexed city leaders for a long time. Bass also has some powerful new tools that previous mayors have not had. In this election, L.A. voters chose a much more progressive city council, and they also approved ballot initiatives to address housing, including a large tax increase on high-value real estate transactions uh, that's going to raise up to a billion dollars a year for affordable housing. Fernando Guerra, who directs the Center for the Study of Los Angeles at Loyola Marymount University, says that these things give Bass a huge opportunity to deliver on her promise. She knows how to negotiate. She's going to be pulled from the left, and she's got the money. She now has the ability, the city of L.A. now has the ability and the resources to fight homelessness like never before. The city's also facing other issues, Layla. Uh, L.A. City Hall has been engulfed in scandal recently. Council members have been arrested on corruption charges. Others have uh, gotten in trouble for making racist comments. So restoring public trust in city government is going to be another big challenge for uh, Mayor Bass. And L.A. is also going to soon start making preparations to host the Olympics in 2028, a process that Bass is going to be highly influential in and that is sure to surface a lot of competing tensions and interests. NPR's Adrian Florido in Los Angeles. Thank you. Thank you, Leila. As winter sets in, homeless shelters across the country are seeing more senior citizens with no place to live. There's a mix of reasons why. Montana Public Radio's Aaron Bolton reports. Here, put that over there with that hat. In the small town of Columbia Falls, Montana, 64-year-old Lisa Beatty sorts through piles of clothes, jewelry, and family heirlooms she plans to sell because her landlord just doubled the rent. They're not evicting me. It's just that, you know, on a fixed income, I can't do it. Beatty and her partner Kim Hilton, who's 68, both live on disability payments and can't find a rental they can afford. This moving thing's just really got... The both of us. Unfortunately, it's broke us up. We're, we're still going to be friends and everything, but we're going to be, you know, away from each other. And I don't know. It's Yeah, it's, it hasn't been a good thing. BD is moving into her daughter's one-bedroom apartment. Hilton, who's recovering from a broken leg and has lots of other health issues, is trying to get into an assisted living facility. He plans to live in his truck while he waits for an opening. That light at the end of the tunnel seems like it's going out. Homeless advocacy groups say this kind of story is playing out across the country as rents over the past year have skyrocketed and thousands of seniors have been displaced by nursing home closures during the pandemic. It's impossible to say exactly how fast the elderly homeless population is growing. Counts typically exclude people over 50 as unsheltered populations rarely live past that age. But the mounting crisis is easy to see inside shelters. This is our women's wing. At the Pavarello Center in Missoula, staffer Lisa Saroy says people 60 and older are quickly becoming one of the largest demographics they serve. We definitely are seeing more and more like folks in their 70s, and we've definitely seen some in their 80s or 90s. Walking the narrow stairwells in crowded rooms full of bunk beds, Saroy says the building simply isn't designed for seniors with mobility issues. Her staff aren't medically trained, and they can't help older guests manage conditions like incontinence. So really, as soon as someone is unable to make it to the restroom on their own regularly, um, transfer on their own, really operate independently, we do have to ask them to leave. Those seniors often have no place to go, says Brian Geyer, who works at the homeless shelter in Bozeman. We had to ask this gentleman to find alternative place to stay. 
And he actually was found outside of a Lowe's store here in Bozeman. The man had frozen to death. National advocacy groups say the situation didn't develop overnight, but is becoming a crisis as Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid have failed to keep up with the true cost of aging for decades. Montana's population is among the oldest in America, and rents in much of the state are increasing much faster than the national average. In the last year, more than 10% of the state's nursing homes have closed. There are efforts to keep Montana's seniors in their homes, but there's broad agreement here that the real long-term solution is building more housing, specifically apartment buildings. When you put more units in a smaller space, costs go down and units become more affordable. It's no more complicated. That's Montana's Republican governor, Greg Gianforte. He recently convened a task force on the housing crisis and thinks if government regulation is reduced, the free market will generate enough new housing. Advocates for homeless people like Sean O'Neill say the free market alone won't provide affordable housing. He favors state and local subsidies. Talking and having those conversations is something we need to have. Otherwise, we're going to keep twiddling our thumbs and hoping that trickle-down housing will come to our seniors and fixed-income folks. In the meantime, the number of seniors scrambling to find housing, like Kim Hilton and Lisa Beattie, continues to grow. I guess I'm ready there, dearie. Leaving the apartment they've shared for the last seven years, she gives him a hug. You've done, Be careful. You've done so much. Be careful. I will. Hilton reassures her, saying she can help him get settled at an assisted living facility soon. But when that opening will come, no one knows. For now, he drives off in search of a place to camp out while he waits for that call. For NPR News, I'm Aaron Bolton in Columbia Falls, Montana. This story is part of a partnership between NPR, Montana Public Radio, and Kaiser Health News. Some other news now. A Milwaukee man has been sentenced to multiple life terms for killing six people and injuring dozens at a Christmas parade last November. During a hearing on Wednesday, relatives of the convicted man raised concerns about his mental health. The victim's families talked about their loss. Chuck Quirmbach of our member station WUWM was listening. Last month, a jury found Darrell Brooks guilty of 76 crimes including six counts of first-degree intentional homicide for driving his SUV into the Christmas parade in the Milwaukee suburb of Waukesha. This week, about 40 victims pointedly described the emotional and physical toll of the deaths and injuries. Brooke Sorensen talked about her grandmother, Virginia Sorensen, who was fatally struck while performing with a dance group. Grammy, I'll see you in my dreams, and I know you will be watching over me. But relatives of Brooks supported the 40-year-old. His grandmother, Mary Edwards, spoke via Zoom from her home in Detroit. Edwards apologized to those harmed by the incident. But she said the bipolar disorder her grandson has had since age 12 caused him to drive through the parade-goers. It is my prayer that he will be treated for this illness and managed in a facility that addresses mental health concerns. Brooks represented himself during his trial. Yesterday, he said that in treatment, he could be properly evaluated and medicated. If that is an extended period of a long, long time, at least I know that I'm getting what I need. 
but Judge Jennifer Doro said earlier mental health evaluations found Brooks competent. Doro said the attempt to blame a mental disorder is, quote, feeble. Which frankly does a disservice to those who truly suffer from mental health issues. I understand why his family might cling to that because of the difficulty in coming to grips with a loved one doing such heinous things. Doro sentenced Brooks to six consecutive life terms for the homicide cases and more than 750 additional years in prison for the other charges. She conceded the lengthy sentence is symbolic, but says it's needed to hold Brooks accountable. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Pernbach in Waukesha, Wisconsin. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, how kids are coping with rising anxiety about climate change and the future of the planet. It's 819. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Well, your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Vertex, working for people with sickle cell and kidney diseases, cystic fibrosis, and more, careers in research and cell and genetic therapies at VRTX.com. And H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, presenting The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, tonight and tomorrow at Symphony Hall, HandelandHaydn.org. I'm Deepa Fernandes. Wildfires are not just a problem in the American West. Portugal has also seen deadly fires, and part of the reason may be the presence of non-native eucalyptus trees there. Portugal was one of the most striking examples of how ecosystem management gone wrong can be so devastating. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Mostly sunny today with a high near 46. We'll also have some gusty winds. Tonight, the winds continue and temperatures fall to a low around 31. Tomorrow, sunny with a high near 45. Then, sunny both days this weekend, around 40 degrees. It's 38 degrees in Boston at 821. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BetterHelp. Connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com public. And from Paychex. The Paychex team of professionals and compliance specialists work to help businesses automate all HR functions into one platform so that they can instead focus on their business and their employees. And from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Fadel. Some of the most strident voices at the Global Climate Summit in Egypt have been youth voices. Younger people are feeling the weight of inheriting a hotter world as the climate changes. We're going to talk about how kids are processing climate change and how to help them with climate anxiety. But first, we meet two students grappling with that. And we're going to start with 17-year-old Gabriel Nagel of Denver, Colorado. He first remembers learning about climate change in class as a seventh grader. 
I don't think it really clicked. Like I saw the numbers increasing on a graph, but I didn't really see how much of a crisis it really was. It wasn't actually until um, Boulder's Sunshine Valley Canyon fire. The fire continues to burn west of Boulder, the Sunshine Canyon area. It's called the Sunshine Fire. More I went to my dad upstairs and told him that like, I think something's wrong. Like, and then we looked outside and it was this, this giant blaze um, coming over the ridge right towards us. More than a thousand homes were evacuated before the sun came up this morning. I mean, we just ended up evacuating with everyone else and just getting out of there for the day. Luckily, when we returned, everything was fine. And that was a moment when it kind of clicked for me that climate change isn't something of the future. It's something that we're dealing with right now, and no matter who you are, you're gonna be impacted. After that fire, I kind of had an internal feeling that I needed to do something, so I started taking personal actions, like bike and public transport and eat less meat. But then I started getting involved with our sustainability club at East High School. That's where I met Mariah. So my name is Mariah Rosenzweig. I am 18 years old. I had grown up just always being outside. I was always one of the few girls that would like be dirtier than all the boys. I think climate advocacy is more than just policy, but for me, it's really getting people to understand how integrated we are with the natural world and we're not separate from it. We tend to talk about this climate change stuff a lot and we'll spend time going to hikes and kind of just enjoying what we have around us while it's there. I went to a sustainability club meeting and one of the presidents was like, hey, we have this other group called DPS Students for Climate Action. And I was immediately like, oh, this is something I want to be a part of. So we started off and we realized DPS, which is essentially the largest school district in Colorado, they lacked any sort of climate action policy. And then we came up with this whole resolution where we outlined goals. One of the goals is 90% reduction in greenhouse gases from 2010 levels. You know, we would meet every single week, and a lot of that was presenting at public comments. And our first topic this evening is sustainability resolution presented by the... So a lot of times it would, we'd put so much heart and so much passion into it. Our first primary goal is for the district to strive to 100% clean energy by... And then the board is like, thank you. Next. Thank you so much. You can... And it was like, oh... How much longer are we going to keep doing this? Once again, we have with us some special guests, the Sustainability Student Group. From start to finish, the process took almost two years. Director Anderson? Aye. Director Balderman? Aye. Director Esterman? Aye. The policy was passed Aye. unanimously, Aye. and it was really amazing. I know on a personal level, it sometimes feels like what I'm doing will never be enough. And part of that is true. Like one person isn't going to be able to change the fate of this planet of climate change. I realize that now the conversation isn't what can we do to prevent climate change? It's how are we going to live with it? As I'm still so young to hear that shift is frustrating because it's like we've known about this for so long. Climate change can be incredibly overwhelming at times, and that's totally okay. It's okay to feel anxious about your future because it is a real threat, but also don't let that stop you from trying to make a change and instead kind of use that as motivation to make the change that we need. That was Gabriel Nagel and Mariah Rosenzweig, both students at East High School in Denver, Colorado. And joining me now for more on how kids are processing climate change is Lauren Summer from NPR's Climate Desk. So we just heard from these two students feeling like not enough is being done. How common are these feelings? 
Yeah, in general, you know, if you look at young adults, they're more likely to care about climate change. And that's true no matter what political party they belong to. And when it comes to younger school age kids, you know, some are experiencing this climate anxiety that we heard. It's something that Dr. Kelsey Hudson, who is a clinical psychologist who specializes in climate change, she's seeing that in her patients. Many young people are experiencing grief and frustration and anxiety and elements of kind of betrayal by adults and other generations. And for some kids, this is kind of layering on top of the isolation and stress they may have experienced during the pandemic. Wow. I think it is kind of hard to hear when you're 41 that they feel betrayed by us, by our generation and other generations. And climate change is in the news a lot right now with the international negotiations going on in Egypt. So if you're a parent or caregiver or even a kid feeling these emotions, what's a good way to address it? Yeah. So Hudson says the first thing is to make some space to talk about it. But if you're a caregiver, ask what a kid knows about climate change and, and how it makes them feel. Listen, you know, acknowledge their feelings and validate that it's a big, difficult thing to think about and avoid the urge to say that everything is going to be OK. Yeah, but I can see how a caregiver might want to just tell their kid, don't worry, everything is going to be OK. What's wrong with that? It's kind of a Band-Aid. It's not a solution. Um, and it's a global change that will affect billions of people. And young people know that. Yeah. So the next step after kind of just talking about it and validating feelings is to find something meaningful, Hudson says. We can think about what does it look like for young people or one young person to find a sense of meaning and purpose in this crisis, to maybe connect with like-minded others and build some agency through connecting with climate engagement or action. So engagement can happen on very different levels, she says. You know, it can be just, you know, planting a pollinator-friendly flower in your backyard with a kid or maybe volunteering at a local park. What's important here is finding community, finding those social connections so that young people don't feel so isolated with these feelings. And I'm sure getting outside, being in nature can be very helpful, too, in this case, right? Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, Gabe and Mariah both talked to me about how they go on walks and hikes together when they're feeling overwhelmed. And that's two strategies that psychologists recommend, you know, talking about it with someone you care about and taking some time in nature and just, you know, enjoying that space. Lauren Summer of NPR's Climate Desk. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thanks. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up on Morning Edition, despite sanctions and international criticism, the Iranian government is stepping up its crackdowns on protesters with security forces opening fire on people in a Tehran metro station. It's 829. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Republicans will be in control of the House beginning in January. The GOP has secured at least 218 House seats in the next Congress. 
NPR's Windsor Johnston says six House races remain too close to call. The decisive call came in California's 27th Congressional District, where Republican incumbent Mike Garcia beat back a challenge from his Democratic opponent, Christy Smith. Even though Republicans will now control the chamber, their majority will be narrow. Earlier this week, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy announced his bid for speaker and was later elected by his caucus. Moving forward, Republicans are likely to initiate investigations into Democrats, including members of the Biden administration, and attempt to repeal some of the legislation that Democrats have passed over the last two years. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. California Congresswoman Karen Bass will be the next mayor of Los Angeles. The city's mayoral contest was called yesterday, more than a week after Election Day. Bass, a Democrat, defeated Rick Caruso, a former Republican who switched to the Democratic Party ahead of the race. Two to three feet of snow are expected in Buffalo, New York, over the next couple of days. That's according to the National Weather Service. This is NPR News. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. A second major seafood watchdog group is pulling its support of the Maine lobster industry over concerns for endangered North Atlantic right whales. Starting next month, lobster products from Maine will no longer carry the Marine Stewardship Council's sustainability label. Mike Desette of the Down East Lobstermen Association says he's not surprised. With the way that, you know, the political arena is and the policies dictating what's going to happen offshore with wind and and all that different stuff, I just figured that this would be another tool that they would use to, to black label the state of Maine. An independent review by the Stewardship Council found no evidence that the Maine lobster fishery is responsible for whale entanglements, but the council says it based its decision on a federal court ruling that found existing regulations aimed at reducing the risk to whales are insufficient. A Newton judge accused of helping an undocumented immigrant flee from immigration officials can now return to the bench. The Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court ruled yesterday to reinstate Judge Shelley Joseph. Joseph was indicted in 2019 for allowing an undocumented immigrant to leave through a rear courthouse door. The Boston Globe reports the charges against Joseph were dismissed. Boston police are investigating another bomb threat to Boston Children's Hospital. Parts of the hospital were evacuated as a result of a threat made yesterday. Investigators say they did not find any bombs. The hospital's gender multi-specialty service program has been the target of most of the threats. Many came in August and September. BCH is the first hospital in the U.S. to have a major program focusing on gender-affirming care for youths. A judge says a Providence police officer was justified in his actions when he punched a woman at an abortion rally over the summer. Prosecutors say a political rivalry motivated Officer Jean Lugo to strike Jennifer Rourke during a brawl this summer. At the time, the two were competing for the same state Senate seat, Lugo as a Republican, Rourke as a Democrat. The judge ruled yesterday that Lugo was only acting to maintain public order, even though he was off-duty at the time. It's 8:34. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, who believes auto and home insurance should be straightforward and works to assure their customers at every step. More at PlymouthRock.com. 
The Celtics are celebrating an eight-game winning streak. They beat the Atlanta Hawks last night on the road by 25 points. The Seas are off tonight, but will play again tomorrow in New Orleans. The Bruins are looking for a win against the Philadelphia Flyers tonight. The Bruins are so far undefeated at home with nine wins at the Garden so far this season. They'll look to make it an even 10 tonight at 7. Clear skies and mid-40s today. It'll also be pretty windy. Those winds continue tonight as temperatures drop to the low 30s. Sunny tomorrow in the low to mid-40s. Sunny on Saturday in the low 40s. It's 39 degrees in Boston at 834. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Fadel. And I'm Steve Inskeep. One day after Donald Trump declared another run for president, one of his longtime aides began testimony in a trial. He's the former chief financial officer of the Trump Organization. Alan Weisselberg already pleaded guilty to felony tax charges. And now a Manhattan jury is hearing his testimony to decide whether the Trump Corporation is also guilty of criminal fraud. NPR's Andrea Bernstein has been covering the trial. Andrea, Good morning. Good morning. Okay, what is the case that Weisselberg is discussing on the stand? This is the trial over whether the company broke criminal laws by paying Weisselberg and other top executives with untaxed benefits. Here's the way it worked. So Weisselberg collected a salary and paid taxes on his W-2 form. But on top of that, he also got a set package of luxury items that he didn't pay taxes on, a Mercedes-Benz for him and his wife, furniture, electronics, private school tuition for Weisselberg's grandchildren. And the company tracked those payments in a spreadsheet, backed them out of his compensations, and did not report them to the government. Donald Trump, the man, is not criminally charged, and his company's mm-hmm. lawyers say Weisselberg did it for Weisselberg. What's at issue here is whether Trump's company also benefited from the scheme to cheat taxpayers. And prosecutors need to prove that Weisselberg just wasn't like a bank teller stuffing money in his pockets, but as a high managerial agent acting in behalf of the company as well. Well, what has he said so far on the stand? He spoke from the witness stand in a clear kind of growly voice, really like the accountant from Central Casting. We heard him go over checks and payments made for his two-bedroom luxury condo with a terrace overlooking the Hudson and related expenses like cable and, and parking. The prosecutor asked him directly who authorized the payments, and he said the rent was authorized by Donald Trump. Weisselberg also noted that beginning in 2012, Trump personally paid checks for Weisselberg's grandchildren's tuition, and he admitted when that happened, he knew that taxes were owed but not being paid. Well, I'm trying to figure this out. If prosecutors want to show this wasn't just one guy on the take, but it was a system, what is the benefit to the Trump organization, the larger company of this scheme, if any? So Weisselberg was asked directly, why didn't he just get a raise from the company? And he explained if he got $200,000 in unpaid benefits, he would have needed twice the salary or $400,000 to cover his taxes. Prosecutor asked him, did the Trump Corporation save the extra money when he got what she called the gross-up amount? 
if they'd had to pay him that. And Weisselberg said, yes, you could say that. If the company had to give me all this in cash, I would, they would have had to pay me more. One more thing. This method of compensation ended in 2017 when Trump became president, and Weisselberg did get a raise in his salary then. Just to be clear, is Weisselberg still on Trump's payroll? Yeah, he testified to this. After he was criminally charged, he still went to work, changed his title. After he pleaded guilty, he went on a paid leave. So he's still getting $640,000, maybe a bonus, from the companies testifying against. The former president declared that he's running for a third time for president just this week. People wonder, does that change the status at all of the various investigations or even this trial? In a word, no. When Trump became president, he was able to delay some legal matters by claiming presidential immunity. But now, though he's a candidate, he's still an ordinary citizen. In fact, in the New York civil case, which is another case in New York, the issue of political motivation has already come up before a judge, and the judge has said what matters are the facts and the law. NPR's Andrea Bernstein, thanks. Thank you. An Iranian court this week handed down the first death sentence to a demonstrator taking part in anti-government protests that have confronted Iran's regime for two months. Violent suppression efforts by security forces have not stopped protests sparked by the death of a 22-year-old woman in police custody. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports. On Monday, European Union foreign ministers approved the latest round of sanctions against Iran's interior minister and other officials, as well as entities including Iranian media. Here's an excerpt from Press TV, Iran's English-language news channel, on the latest sanctions, as announced by EU foreign policy chief Joseph Borrell, who repeated the bloc's backing for the demonstrators. To support them, today the Council adopted another 31 listing under the Iran human rights regime. The channel you are watching now, Press TV, has also been added to the EU sanctions list. It's clear that the pressure is getting Iran's attention. One of the protesters those sanctions are intended to support is Marie, who lives in northern Iran. Contacted via the Internet, she asked that her family name not be used because she fears repercussions for speaking to the foreign media. She says her family got so fed up with the state news channels that they no longer watch television. In the past 50 days, we haven't watched Iranian state TV at all. We disconnected the antenna altogether because they deliver so much nonsense and lies. We can see with our own eyes what is happening on the streets. We have been harassed ourselves as well. And then the news tries to show that there is peace and quiet, flowers and birds everywhere in the country. Marie says the protests are still going strong, although her family hasn't been joining in lately. Because of multiple injuries in my family members and relatives, it is hard to join street protests for us right now. We all still have scars from previous crackdowns. But she says once they recover, they will be back among the protesters. Iran watchers see a robust protest movement that seems determined to keep pushing against the authorities, the latest effort being general strikes in several parts of Iran. But the regime seems determined to continue with its crackdown. It has ample tools of suppression at its disposal. Rights groups say more than 10,000 people have been arrested, hundreds have reportedly been killed. A few days before a death sentence was handed out to a protester, I spoke with analyst Sanam Vakil at the London-based Chatham House think tank. She said numerous calls by hardliners for severe punishment of demonstrators suggest that overt international support for the protests may wind up pushing the government to even harsher methods than have been seen to date. 
And so I'm approaching the protest with a degree of caution because the state in Iran still retains a monopoly of the use of force to suppress people, even with violent means, which they continue to demonstrate. I don't think the protests have reached a level that they could challenge that state monopoly. Vakil also says while she sees Iranians coming together over issues related to dignity, she has yet to see protesters agree on a common goal for what a future Iran should look like or how it should function. That, she says, is badly needed, as demonstrators continue to challenge a regime that shows no sign of giving ground. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. This is NPR News. I'm Rupa Shanoi in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, African nations are making the case for reparations at the UN Climate Summit in Egypt. We focus on the impact of climate change on the country of Chad. Mid-40s today with gusty winds and mostly sunny skies. Tonight, windy with low 30s. Tomorrow, clear skies and low to mid-40s. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston at 843. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Joy Street Artists Association. Be inspired by the work of over 65 artists at Brick Bottom and Joy Street Open Studios this Saturday and Sunday. Brickbottom.org slash events. Now in business news, Boston-based therapy. Pair Therapeutics is laying off nearly 60 employees. That accounts for about one quarter of its workforce. The company blames a, quote, challenging macroeconomic environment for the cuts. The company laid off 25 employees in July. Two big names in New England sports are part of a group of athletes being sued by crypto investors. Tom Brady and David Ortiz are named in a class action lawsuit filed Tuesday. The suit is over the sudden collapse of cryptocurrency company FTX. The lawsuit alleges a host of celebrities and professional athletes are liable for damages sustained by investors because they acted as brand ambassadors for the crypto company. FTX co-founder and former CEO Sam Bankman-Fried graduated from MIT in 2014. Ski season officially begins at Killington Resort in Vermont today. The resort says pass holders will have exclusive access to the slopes today. It opens to the general public tomorrow morning. It's 845. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the MBTA, helping tens of thousands of people reach their destinations every day. The MBTA is hiring across multiple departments. The T offers competitive salaries, solid benefits, and established paths for growth. For more information and to apply today, visit mbta.com slash careers. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. The single biggest question at this year's climate summit is who pays? Who pays for the damage 
caused by climate change. Many nations want money from wealthier countries that over time have polluted the air far more. Less wealthy nations have faced some of the worst consequences so far. And this is visible in Africa's Sahel region, which spreads across multiple countries, including Chad. Villa Marks reports for NPR. Hawa Ali Beta has left behind a land that had grown less and less familiar. These days, farming isn't good, she says. You know when you overexploit the land for many years, the land's fertility is depleted. Her family raised cattle in the northeast of Cameroon, but over the course of two generations, a changing climate made that existence increasingly difficult. And so, like thousands of others, she became a climate refugee, forced to flee to neighboring Chad. There's not enough rain, she says, not enough rain, and the cattle cannot survive without water. A community known as Chua Arab started to compete for water access with another group that survived on fish caught in local streams. Disputes over those water sources eventually turned deadly. Villages and houses were burned, she says. People were killed and burned. Over three days of fighting last December, Howard estimates more than 150 people died. Can you believe that because of water, people are killing each other? Yes, because of water. Water meant many people were killed, according to Brahim Sakin, a young college student. He left his parents behind and is now on his own for the first time. Do you have more food or less food here? Here is less food, less than Cameroon. In Cameroon, we eat three times per day, but here, two times. Chad currently hosts roughly half a million refugees from half a dozen of its neighbours, including Cameroon, with more and more escaping problems linked to a lack of resources. Bree Stegler is responsible for the Cameroonians in Chad as a senior manager at the UN's refugee agency. You have displaced population who are moving because of the armed conflict, but we have also people moving within the country because they have lack of water. Climate change-linked conflict and displacement is occurring right across this region south of the Sahara Desert called the Sahel. But in villages like Bulugu, there are efforts to help people stay put. Residents use palm tree branches to build natural barriers against the sand, safeguarding local food production, helping a once abandoned wadi or valley return to life, filled with wheat, corn and pepper plants. Saleh Ibrahim Dikair manages this project and explains that between harvests, hunger often overwhelms such communities. This year is a bit better than before, he says. With increased production, food insecurity has fallen. Maybe in future, Saleh says, food shortages will become a thing of the past. Until then, farmers here, like so many others in this Sahel region, must adapt to survive thanks to forces far beyond their control. For NPR News, I'm Willem Marx in Bulugu, Chad. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Leila Faldin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, the number of mortgage applications rose last week, in part because mortgage rates fell slightly. But as the Marketplace Morning Report explains, homes aren't necessarily going to become more affordable.
And coming up at noon today, it's here and now, and Deepa Fernandez is here to tell us what they're going to be talking about today. Hi, Deepa. Hi, Rupa. So we have a lot on the show today. As always, we, as many people now know, the uh, GOP has claimed the majority in Congress. So we will get all the latest from Capitol Hill. We'll also go to L.A. where that that city has a new mayor, the first black woman, the first woman to lead the city of L.A. And we are going to delve into massive fires that have been consuming not the American West, not California, but the country of Portugal, and a really simple solution that has come out in that it's all about the trees that we plant, and this applies to the American West as well, that we may be planting the wrong trees that don't suck up as much carbon from the emission, and it might be a very positive climate change story. So, Rupa, we've got a lot coming up on the show, and and we look forward to... um, talking with everybody later on this morning. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thanks, Diva. Thank you. That's here and now. Today at noon, it's 8.51. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank. Give the gift of a Thanksgiving meal. Donate at gbfb.org WBUR. Laws targeting transgender people are leading some trans people to run for public office. Several bills passed through the Montana legislature by one vote. And I thought to myself, I know representation can make that difference. I'm Elsa Chang, two newly elected lawmakers on how they plan to fight those bills. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today at 4 on WBUR. A mix of sun and clouds today with temperatures in the mid-40s. It'll also be windy. Tonight it falls to the low 30s. The winds will continue. Tomorrow, clear skies and low to mid-40s. Friday night temperatures may fall to the upper 20s. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 852. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters return to delight all ages this holiday season, beginning November 25th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. The people who thought last week was the right time to borrow for a house. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. The number of applications for mortgages went up last week. The Mortgage Bankers Association concludes more people jumped back into the housing market because interest rates had fallen slightly, moving back below 7% for a 30-year fixed-rate loan. But there are two big parts when it comes to affordability, the cost of the loan and the cost of the house. Marketplace's Justin Ho has more. If inflation slows down and if the Federal Reserve eases off on its interest rate hikes, mortgage rates could fall further, says Charlie Dougherty, an economist at Wells Fargo. We're actually expecting mortgage rates to gradually descend over the course of the next two years. That could push more people into the housing market, which in theory would put upward pressure on prices. But I think the market would need to see sustained lower interest rates to see that kind of upward pressure. That's Odetta Kushi, an economist at First American. She says mortgage rates made homes so unaffordable that home prices have started to fall. We can probably still expect prices to adjust downwards to kind of the new reality of higher mortgage rates. But if prices go down, Greg McBride at Bankrate.com says that won't make homes more affordable. As long as mortgage rates remain very high or we've got an economic environment that is less than inspiring for would-be homebuyers. 
because lower prices won't always help if you're not confident in the economy. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Let's stay on this theme of the affordability of shelter. This is an especially difficult situation to navigate for first-time homebuyers. To help us take today's economic pulse, let's turn to Majora Carter, an urban revitalization specialist, a real estate developer, and a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. Ms. Carter, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me, David. The percentage of home buyers who are getting into their first homes plunged in the last year or so. I mean, does that worry you? It keeps me up at night, and I wasn't aware of how much it plunged, actually. But it's also really difficult you know, to know is that at the same time, in the kind of communities where people would be able to be a part of the American dream by buying one of those homes, that private equity is actually buying more of those and not regular people. You know, I'd like to say it would be ironic, though, that maybe the central bank the Fed is helping this. They've been jacking up interest rates in the fight against inflation. And so the multiple offer frenzies are becoming more rare than they were in high pandemic. And some of the prices are coming down. But of course, the flip side is if someone wants to buy a house, they have to pay more for the mortgage. Right. With interest rates going up, you know, and in so many of the markets where the price for homes is actually just astronomical. And, you know, the fact that there is not a real push to say, okay, just plain old Americans, regular Americans, how do we support them? Like decrease the wealth gap, you know, to provide the opportunities for folks to be in better positions for generational wealth. That really is a very problematic way that we're looking at this country and actually who needs to succeed. And I do think that we're also, you know, essentially, you know, privatizing profits and socializing the social costs, you know, of so many of these issues that we're going through. I mean, the statistics show that some of the prices are beginning to drift down over the summer into the fall. But then when you look compared to a year earlier, the prices are still much higher than they were a year ago. So you still have, I guess, is this your experience uh, where you work? Pretty high prices, but very high cost of borrowing now. Yes, those two combined, you know, just literally takes people, you know, off the table. It also just makes rental prices higher as well. So we're seeing those just stay up where it's just like nothing is affordable. And we're not just talking for you know lower income people. We're talking you know middle income people who are often finding that they need to you know have more than one, whether it's family or, or couple like living in the same space. And that in and of itself should send alarms, I think, everywhere. Majora Carter is very focused on urban revitalization. She's a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. And her book is called Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one. Majora, always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Checking markets, Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ futures are all down 1% or more, 1.4% down for NASDAQ futures. This amid concern that consumers are still spending vigorously, suggesting a higher range for interest rates ahead. The head of the St. Louis Fed, James Bullard, said today that the higher rates his team has been engineering in have had, quote, only limited effects so far. At 113 Starbucks locations today, you'll find workers on strike. The union says the company's negotiating in bad faith, something Starbucks has denied. The company has objected to contract talks via Zoom. The strikes come on the day of the big Starbucks promotion, where they give out commemorative red plastic cups that some people collect. The union has its own red cups, evoking a cartoon Grinch. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists tailor portfolios to clients' long-term goals. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. Nike's Chief Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Officer, or CDO, is leaving after six months on the job. He's just one of the many in the company's diversity department exiting in recent years. And although this could signal greater problems for Nike, which has struggled with complaints about sexual harassment and discrimination, turnover is common among corporate diversity officers in general. Marketplace's Kristen Schwab reports. Diversity and Inclusion Manager has been the second fastest-growing job title over the past five years, right behind Vaccine Specialist. That's according to LinkedIn. And that kind of growth comes with a learning curve. Firms don't fully understand what's needed for a chief diversity officer to overhaul company culture. It takes a number of years, and CDOs need their own staff. Stephanie Creary, a management professor at Wharton, says also there isn't a standard for what type of person takes on this role and what skills they need. That's what's lacking, a clear professional pathway to prepare you, at least fundamentally, um, from a knowledge capacity in some of the underlying things that one needs to be thinking about. Query says CDOs used to mostly be lawyers, then HR professionals. Now a lot of companies promote people with a clear passion for DEI who may not be the right fit for the job. I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR, and here's your forecast. Mostly sunny, windy, and mid-40s today. Low 30s tonight. Sunny tomorrow with low to mid-40s, and we'll still be pretty windy. On Friday night, we may see temperatures in the upper 20s. Sunny on Saturday in the low 40s. Right now, it's 41 degrees in Boston, and we're coming up on 9 o'clock. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Symphony Orchestra. Seek something new with the BSO's upcoming season. Thrilling music and world-class performers await. Learn more today at bso.org. A new word was coined to describe the economy in the fall of 2020. She-session. Neat, but maybe too convenient. I realize the news media is filled with headlines that don't fully reflect what's going on in the economy. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.